Hi, I'm Paul Stringfellow and welcome to Tech Interviews. This week, it's thanks for the memory as we take a look at Spectre, Meltdown and the future of persistent memory. So, settle back and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to another Tech Interviews. Uh, this week, we're going to be taking a look at a topic that um, really took many of us by surprise at the early part of this year, uh, as the way Spectre and Meltdown became uh, became common phrases in everyday IT communication. Um, so what we're going to be doing is uh, I'm, I'm going to be joined today by somebody. We're going to dig into uh, what Spectre and Meltdown are, um, what the impact to technology is right now, and then take a little look of what the, the impact of this kind of uh, incident might have to us longer term um, as we look at uh, the impact of using more and more things that are going to sit in memory maybe persistently um, uh, over time. So, um, but to help me to do that, I'm very fortunate today to be joined by uh, an old friend of mine, actually, um, Alex McDonald. Hi, Alex. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, yeah. We're, uh, we're just staying off air, weren't we? It's, uh, it's been an awful long time that we've known each other from, um, uh, and we met each other in some, some very odd places quite, quite early on. Uh, yeah, 2005. Yeah, we, we might need to clarify what we mean by odd places at another another time before <laughs> before people start asking too many questions. Um, so, um, well, look, look, before we uh, dive into our topic today, um, Alex, why, why don't you introduce yourself and and tell the uh, tell the listeners uh, who you are and what it is you do? Well, I'm, my name is Alex McDonald. I work for a storage company called NetApp of uh, international fame. And at NetApp, I work for the Storage Industry Associations Group. In other words. We, we work on, I'm sorry, Standards Industry Associations Group. We work on standards and industry associations like, for instance, the IETF, SNEA, DMTF. There's a wide variety of bodies out there. And I represent NetApp on those and also represent industry-wide through organizations like SNEA, uh, where I, I, I run educational programs for SNEA. So it's, 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 a, it's a fairly broad-ranging um, a set of activities that I undertake to, to educate and inform. So, uh, well, the education and information bit, that's, uh, that's very useful um, because I think, um, you know, maybe like many people who listen to this show, I think we were, um, you know, we were made aware of Spectrum Meltdown. And, and, and certainly in my case, I know I had a really high level view of kind of what that was and why that had such an impact and, and maybe such concern to, to many in the industry. Um, so what I wanted to do today with this show is to, to perhaps just to delve a little bit into that, um, understand a little bit more about the, you know, what Spectrum Meltdown are or, or where and are. Um, and, and how they do impact technology and some of the things that we might need to think about as we as we kind of plan our IT strategies going forward. So um, so maybe the, I suppose the place to start is at Spectrum Meltdown. What, what exactly are they? Well, the, 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 there are actually two vulnerabilities caused by modern technologies. And what, what we've managed to do with these technologies is push them so hard, so fast, and so forward that we've struck new sets of problems with them. And Spectre and Meltdown actually share one thing in common. They're actually attacks that are based on what are called side channel attacks. In other words, instead of going out there and, for instance, just directly stealing somebody's keys, let's say you've got a key for a wallet. Instead of going out there and directly stealing somebody's keys and then using the key against the wallet, what Spectre and Meltdown allow you to do is look sideways at the issue and detect things that you normally wouldn't be able to see. So I'll give you an example of that. One of the things that we've done a lot of in the industry in terms of chips techno chip technology is what's called out-of-order execution. That is, as an example, 
If I've got a piece of code that goes in a straight line, that's dead easy. I can execute that code in a straight line. But if I come to a branch, when I branch off somewhere, I don't know the result of that branch in advance, but I can guess at it. So what modern chipsets do is they speculatively execute from that branch onwards. So they assume that the branch has been taken and execute it correspondingly, and they assume that the branch hasn't been taken and execute that in parallel. Now, that sounds like a terrific thing to do, and it is, because effectively what we can do, if we guess right, and if we've executed far enough down the, down the correct path, we're ahead of the game, and we can speed up the execution of quite a lot of processes based on that simple trick of doing this uh, branch execution uh, in advance. So what the, one of these uh, uh, technology, oh, sorry, one of these exposures allows us to time cache accesses, because we cache quite a lot of data. What we can do is we can speculatively execute a piece of code and notice the cache effects, and we can time the cache effects, because things that happen in cache happen a lot quicker than things that don't happen in cache, which is a lot slower. So by timing stuff, by flushing out all the caches, and by timing branches, where we can see speculative execution taking place, we can actually detect what the value was at the point of the branch. That's one example. Another one, and perhaps a simpler one to explain, is let's assume I've got a piece of data that I want to look at, but I'm not allowed to look at it. So in other words, it's isolated from me. Let's say I'm a in user space. I'm a end user. I'm a piece of JavaScript. And what I want to do is go and find out what's in some kernel space that I'm not allowed to look at normally. And it might contain things like, I don't know, keys, other people's data. So what I can do there is I can, let's say I've got a value at, at a location, like one, let's call it location 1000 in the kernel, okay? And it's got the value either one, two, three, four, or five, for example. What I can do is I can actually use a, a, a technique of getting a piece of code, like a piece of JavaScript code, to address that address and say, is this value the number one? And if the answer is yes, then I can see the effects in cache. If the answer is no, and I'm not allowed to see it anyway, then I can see also that effect in cache. I might not be able to see the value directly, but because of the speculative caching of that data, I know whether it made it into cache or not. And if it made it into cache, then it had the value one. If it didn't make it into cache, then it didn't have the value one. And I can go and test for two. And then I can go and test for three. And et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, there's a quicker way of doing that. You don't need to test for values explicitly. You just test for bits. So it's bit one on, and bit two on, bit three on, et cetera. And you can read out data from areas that you're not allowed to see simply by timing the cache. That doesn't sound like terribly good news to me, Paul. Does it sound like good news to you? No, no exactly. Because it, so, it sounds like the idea that, um, you know, it's probably, it's a, it's a, if, if I've, I've got it correctly, you know, is the idea that via a little bit of code execution, I can go diving into memory to access things that, uh, well, into cache perhaps, to access things that I think has long since uh, expired from there and has been written securely away to disk or, or wherever it's gone. No, no, this, it's, not, it's simpler than that. It's really much simpler than that. It's basically a case of the processor is allowed to do whatever it likes. What it reports back to the user is a different thing, though. 
So the processor is going out there and speculatively executing. that We can't see what the value is. We're not seeing it directly. But what we're seeing is the side effect of the processor caching that data because we guessed correctly or not caching that data because we guessed incorrectly. So we, you know, the, the whole point about this is it's all about timing things. I'm timing the cache. I'm simply using very high resolution timers to say, did the processor try to execute on? Did it try and fetch that memory? Even though I'm not allowed to see it, and it'll come back and tell me, no, that's a that's an address exception. You're not allowed to look there. But I still know because I've timed what's happening with the caches. Uh, and, that, from, and so from doing that, you can kind of reconstitute the data, you know, as correct. you said before, yeah. So it's, you know, somebody else's data that in the real world you don't think you're able to see, but you're exactly. guessing almost uh, reconstitute what that data looks like. Exactly. So if it's slow, I wasn't allowed. If it's fast, I was allowed. So I could say, yeah, I now know the bit value for that. And I can build up a pattern. And, and the, 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 the kind of speed you can read out of memory is not that fast with Spectre in particular. It's about 1,500 bytes a second, but that's fast enough. Hmm. The other thing about Spectre in particular, it doesn't require any privileges. You can do this thing that's JavaScript. So it, it's actually quite a difficult thing to mitigate. The, I think that this, this all goes back to, and you and I again were talking earlier about you know, background on mainframes, etc. One of the things we didn't do on mainframes until quite late on in the game was run what I call antagonistic workloads. Antagonistic workloads are workloads that are sharing a space where we normally wouldn't have shared the space. In other words, to give you an example, on a virtual machine, I'm running antagonistic workloads. I've got workloads for me as customer A running on exactly the same physical resource as customer B. And customer A and customer B might be competitors, or they might be in unrelated industries, but where there's security requirements that, you know, you don't know my data and I don't know yours. And that's really an issue for this. That's, that's really where the problem boils down to. Antagonistic workloads, you know, who cares if everything that you're running is yours? Yeah. Not, nobody. And this, if, why the, uh, and this is why the threat was perhaps so keenly felt by kind of service providers? Yes. Exactly, because these antagonistic workloads provide an opportunity for the bad guys to go out there, and particularly with Meltdown, which is the other variety, so there's, you know, the Spectre and Meltdown are two varieties. In fact, Spectre's probably got about, uh, has got two variants anyway, but, but the Meltdown one in particular was the one that caused the service providers the most um, indigestion, to be quite honest. So and would, and would this be something then that... Um, because uh, obviously with service providers, you say, you know, who cares if you um, execute that vulnerability on your own stuff because in the end it's all yours anyway. But how easy would this be to exploit if I was sat externally to your network and wanted to have a crack at stealing what you had? It's not that easy, uh, to be quite honest. But as we've seen over the years, the amount of intelligence in the black hat community, you know, the people who want to do us damage, is considerable and the amount of talent is considerable and the fact that you know we have been under attack from things as simple as denial of service attacks all the way up to you know people encrypting the contents of your hard disk and then demanding money to decrypt it 
you know, these kind of things are vulnerabilities and people will take advantage of them. They only need, you know, that great saying, you know, from a security perspective, in defence, you need to be lucky all the time. In attack, you only need to be lucky once. And, and I really think that's the, the focus of this, is that it is extraordinarily difficult to take advantage of these things, but they can be taken advantage of. There are proof of concepts out there, and there will be people out there who are quite willing to invest the time and effort because the returns are potentially that great from being able to do it. And, and if I'm listening to this as somebody uh, you know, who's, who's running IT within an enterprise, you know, and I think the majority of people who listen to this show are probably in that position as opposed to in a position of service providers. Mm -hmm. you know, how, how concerned should they be? How vulnerable would their systems potentially be to something like this? So in, in terms of the one that gave the uh, service providers the majority of their heartburn, which was meltdown, that has mitigations. And the mitigations have a certain cost associated with them, particularly uh, in terms of performance. You might see a performance hit. Um, because what, what we've done to mitigate there is separate out the user space from the kernel space a bit more effectively than we had done before. Uh, and, but the, the side effect of doing so is to cause a little overhead, so it's not as efficient. And depending on the workload, you can see anything from a slight decline, like 2%, all the way up to, I mean, I've seen reported figures of 17%, 30%, but it very much depends on the workload. And most people won't notice the difference. There might be a certain increase in CPU time. If you're using service provider, you know, uh, your bills might go up by a little bit, but that's worth investigating with your service provider. Internally, again, you're going to see more resource consumption, but I've yet really to come across enterprise customers who are really resource constrained. A lot of them are operating with quite a bit of slop and fat, um, even today. And I think, I think most people are not going to notice this as a big issue. So the remediation has been taking place, by the way, in terms of Linux and in terms of Windows. Uh, both of those have been patched for Meltdown, and people should be applying uh, the latest patches just to make sure they get them. Yes, in, in true, uh, true security, good practice style, really, you know, make, making sure you're yeah. patching systems, particularly against, against something like this. But, but I assume that those systems are vulnerable in the way any other exploit is, is that if people can get the right code deployed in the right place, then the potential to execute that code against an unpatched vulnerability is, is going to be as straightforward as it is for anything else. Just yeah, unfortunately, in this case, though, just simply running a VM on a hosted service would give that a malign VM, the opportunity to go and read other VMs running on the same same hardware. So that that's really the issue there. Um, but as I say, most most vendors of of, of um, services have already applied these patches and are mitigated against these. So, so one of the areas that this is, um, I, I suppose, and we, we were talking about this before we started recording, with where this becomes really intriguing is some of the changes that we're starting to see in the industry and you kind of touched on kind of old mainframe type of ideas of the more and more things that we are putting in memory the more potentially that issues like this in the future may may become even bigger than they perhaps where we're on this occasion so you know so, so maybe to go into a little bit more detail on that so so kind of what, what, how how is it changing the way that we're looking to use memory in the future and and how does how do exploits like this you know impact that thinking well this runs in really in parallel with it if you think about what kind of memories we currently have we've got dynamic ram memory or dram which when you purr it off 
goes completely brain dead. I mean, it gets wiped, wiped clean. And persistent storage in the form of disks, whether they be flash or traditional spinning rust, or tape even for that matter. And, and, and between the two, there's not a great deal. So what we tend to do is we tend to read things from disk, put it in memory, operate it on memory, then write it back to disk again. And that's been the traditional data processing style for many years now. And, and the reason for that is that it's very expensive to do stuff on disk because it's not particularly fast. And it's really expensive to do stuff in memory because although it's blisteringly fast, it's also extraordinarily and eye-wateringly expensive per bit. So, you know, we've had this problem whereby, you know, the disk is a million times slower than DRAM, but a million times cheaper. And that's where this new class of memory comes in, what some people have been calling storage class memory, but I don't think that's really the right term, and I prefer persistent memory. Uh, and in fact, the industry is more in favor of the word persistent memory. But what that does is provide you with a layer of memory between the speed of DRAM, which is measured in nanoseconds, and disks, which are measured in milliseconds. Even flash disks are measured in, you know, very high hundreds of microseconds at best. So, you know, they, they, I, I consider them millisecond class devices or thousandth of a second. And what this persistent memory provides you with is something in the between costs as well. So it's not as expensive as DRAM per bit, uh, but it's slightly more expensive than disk per bit. And examples of that are things like uh, 3D Crosspoint from Intel. Um, now, these kind of technologies, are, because they're persistent memory, all of a sudden we've got very large address spaces in the terabyte to petabyte range. But we're sharing this resource, much as we share main memory. And this shared resource is now persistent, so we need to think about things like key management, where we do the key management. So although it's a terrifically exciting technology, and that provides us with vast spaces that operate in the microsecond range, which is that midpoint between DRAM and disk. It also provides us with vast potential for reading other people's data. Mm. And so, we're, you know, we're back to square one in that sense. The industry is addressing this, by the way. There's a lot of attention and focus being put on this particular problem of having memory that is persistent and shared and how you go about handling it. Well, we'll come back to that in a second, because I think that, you know, that, that is an, an important point, isn't it, about what is it that we can do to mitigate the, the risks? Because, you know, I'm guessing that things, you know, spectrum and meltdown maybe made the, the industry step back a little and think, whoa, hang on a minute, maybe we'd not really thought about this problem. Um, and may, maybe that needs some rethinking. But, but before we look at that, obviously this shift towards persistent memory maybe the answer might be obvious but i'm going to ask the question anyway so, so what's kind of driving you know as an industry and as um, you know and, and, and as businesses you know what, what is it that's driving this move to persistent memory why would we want to do that why is um you know processing things in cpu and in memory but writing back to disk why, why is that in in the longer longer term future why is that not going to continue to be the the best way of doing things so if you look at some of the applications we're seeing today they are A, very hungry of memory, B, very hungry of compute, and C, latency sensitive. So the, you know, the kind of things I'm thinking of are things like, I don't know, business analytics or artificial intelligence or machine learning. I mean, these kind of things consume vast quantities of memory and require huge amounts of compute. And, and what persistent memory is offering you is the ability to do the equivalent of. Let, let me give you an example here. Let's take a high-end flash array, 
as an example, and I might be able to do a quarter of a million IOPS on it at a latency of around about, let's say, I don't know, three milliseconds less, two milliseconds, somewhere around that order of magnitude. What these new systems potentially offer us with persistent memory is doing the equivalent of, I don't know, 10 million IOPS a second at a latency of around about, oh, I don't know, microseconds, three microseconds as an example. That's like you know, 80 times faster than your average disk with 80 times the throughput. I mean, the, the step change here is absolutely enormous. It, it, it's quite shocking, actually, when you actually see somebody running, running for instance, an SQL server application doing three million IOPS at three microseconds. I can tell you it's a real eye-opener when you see it for the first time. Yeah, and I think the, um, you know, and I've been involved in, and no doubt you have, that, you know, we're, I know we've been involved in projects where, you know, people have spent a lot of money on moving from, uh, you know, spinning disk to flash-based disk because yep. it's literally knocked hours off the way they can run a big report in SQL, for example. Yeah. So of course, you talk, no, you can put that in memory that even a report now that maybe take, you used to take eight hours now takes one hour. We're talking about that taking seconds, aren't we? So yes. I mean... No, I was going to say that that's the excitement of this technology in that it is providing you with storage-sized memory. You know, it, 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 we're talking about terabytes of this stuff, not the gigabytes that we've been used to. And we're talking about it at reasonable prices as well. Okay, it's more expensive than this, but by God, it's a lot cheaper than DRAM, a lot cheaper. Yeah, and as I say, you know, we've seen people spend quite a lot of money on buying flash disk over spinning disk because it gives them that uh, you know that kind of exponential performance increase mm -hmm. and, and this is different from the, the there's a lot of conversation around storage at the moment around NVMe as um, as a technology for kind of vastly improving performance but we're talking about magnitudes faster again here I guess are we? Well we're talking about technologies that actually sit on the memory bus rather than sitting on a PCIe bus but we are going to see a lot of development by the way over the next few years on PCIe-based NVMe, and in particular, one of the things that we're going to see a huge amount of, and this is true both of persistent memory and non-volatile or NVMe, is over fabrics, because the one thing you don't want to do when you're talking about stuff that's this big is lock the data in a single box. Hmm. And if you think of the way we treat main memory at the moment, if you think of DRAM, it's all locked inside a single box with, you know, eight cores, 16 cores, up to 64, whatever, you know, a lot of cores operating on, but it's locked in that box. And the over fabrics bit with NVMe and persistent memory is going to be the really important area. And the first fabrics we're seeing already, you know, NetApp announced InfiniBand support back in November last year. Others are supporting fiber channel. We're probably going to see NVMe over TCP. You know, so there's a, there's a there's a wide range of over fabric technologies that will enable us to provide very low latency and very high bandwidth on these new memory technologies. Um, it, it's, it's an exciting time, actually. Yeah, and, and I think the you know the, the whole and actually is just winding back slightly to this idea of what what's driving these kind of things. You know, and I think that they're the kind of things that that, that really interest me. You know, the idea of machine learning and the way that we extract 
much more value out of the data that we own. And one of the ways to extract more value is to be able to extract that that information and find out that that additional information so much quicker because that allows us to make more decisions more quickly, hopefully better decisions more quickly, not just more rubbish decisions, but make better, higher quality decisions and be able to make those decisions much, much more quickly than than we can using existing technologies. Yeah, I mean, I think, say, yeah, go on. No, I was going to say just simple things like, um, uh, uh, you know, genome sequencing uh, as, an, as an example, which is requires very large data sets and lots and lots of horsepower, and, and you know it's going to improve genome sequencing by orders of magnitude. Um, even down to things like one of the big driving forces at the moment for things like smart cars and smart cities, you know, 5G, which is the new networking standard we're going to see coming along shortly, that's going to open up the opportunity as well. And persistent memory is just part of this faster, quicker, much bigger pipes that we're seeing. Um, and it, it, it's a terrific time for technology. I think the, the thing I've been excited about by all this is that for the first time in 40 years, I'm not having to talk about discs anymore. Yeah. Hurrah! Yeah. <laughs> and, well, I think it, you know, and it, I, I, like you say, I mean, you use the phrase exciting. I think you're absolutely right in that, you know, it, it's this kind of stuff that's going to allow us to use technology to solve problems and I remember sitting in a conference about three four months ago where they talked about this idea of these kind of technology shifts allowing technology mm -hmm. to be used to solve problems that right now we don't know how to solve you know and it's things like um, you know things like these much much higher performance access to uh, you know access to storage whether that's persistent memory um, uh, you know and the idea of being able to make you know build processes that allow us to do calculations that we, you know, to do calculations that right now take thousands of years for our current processing technology to do, to be able to have that being done in microseconds is going to allow the, the kind of problems we solve with technology to shift, shift hugely. Yeah, I mean, I saw a presentation by somebody from Cray talking about floating point operations per second, or flops, and suggesting that there are now processes out there, supercomputers super out there, that can do in the space of one day, but it would take a cray from the 1960s, 220 million years to do. <laughs> that, that's, that's the kind of orders of magnitude they're yeah. talking about. And, well, and I suppose, um, you know, it's easy. I'm trying to tra drag us back from the, uh, the future's rabbit hole that we've, we've started heading excitingly down. Great place. Um, because, indeed. Um, because one of the things that we, we kind of touched on before we headed off this route was that as we make this shift towards persistent memory, you know, if we put that in the context of what Spectre and Meltdown wouldn't potentially allow somebody to do and exploits like that in the future, perhaps, one of the things you touched on was that there are already steps that the industry and, you know, including the storage industry, are starting to take to mitigate some of these risks. So mm -hmm. to, make, to maybe make our listeners feel a little more comfortable with this stuff in the future. So, so what are some of the steps and what are some of the mitigating steps that people are already trying to make? You know, what, what things are we likely to see change in perhaps the way we think about this right now um, in the, the, you know, the midterm that, um, that, that will remove some of the risk that we, we spoke about at the beginning? Okay, so the, the, the first thing to recognize is that we're all aware of it. We, we, you know, we, it, 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 this, although this may have come as a shock to a lot of people, and it came as a shock to us as well, to a large degree, we, we've, we've acted pretty quickly as an industry to try and mitigate this. The, the, from a storage perspective, and I'll talk about here about NetApp in particular, if we ignore hyperconverged for a minute, 
one of the things that we can assure people is, and a lot of storage vendors can do exactly the same, there's no risk that your SAN or your NAS box is going to be affected by this because they're running operating systems that exclusively deal with storage. There's no access to that operating system. We're not running any, remember I talked about the antagonistic application? We're not running any antagonistic applications on, for instance, a NetApp head. It's running all NetApp code. And in fact, it's based on uh, BSD as well, rather than Linux or Windows. And so we don't need to do that remediation because there's nothing foreign running on the head. And I think that's an important point that for users of storage that you cannot get Spectre and meltdown problems on your storage boxes. It's just not possible because you can't run foreign workloads. That's not quite true of hyperconverged though. There, what you're doing is running virtualization over the top of some large storage in, inside a server to, if you like, present that storage out to other virtual machines. And there you may need to do mitigation, but there again, we are working to make sure, and most of these things will be solved actually by people like VMware providing mitigation in the VMs uh, to make sure. And I think there's been work on some of the uh, open source VMs. Don't quote me on this. I can, I'm struggling to remember which one it is. It might be KVM, where the mitigation's already been done. So. Those kind of environments will require a bit more work, but they will be mitigated if they haven't already. Um, but I can assure people that from a traditional SAN and NAS array perspective, there is no exposure at all because these boxes do not run foreign workloads. And in terms of... Um you know, you know, in terms then of as we move away from uh, storage in general, you know, so so in terms of the system providers and how we architect stuff, you know, has has Spectrum Meltdown forced some changes in the way that perhaps that persistent memory movement was heading? You know, has, has there been has been changes in the way that's going to be deployed in the future? Not, not really. I don't think it, 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 there's there's more of a general awareness, I suspect, of um, these kind of side channel attacks. I mean, we're getting a lot smarter about it as well. We're beginning to recognize that the direct attack, you know, putting, putting, you know the equivalent of putting the hand in somebody's pocket is not necessary. You know, the indirect attack is, is, is equally effective in these environments. And these side channel attacks, we're getting smarter about them. We're understanding more about them. But people are actually beginning to design systems and technologies that are not susceptible to side channel attacks. For instance, to give you an example, uh, the meltdown, I believe, is only an Intel um, problem currently, and the AMD uh, chipset, in terms of the two chipsets, I'm not talking about any other chipsets like RAM or, or, or any others here, but in terms of Intel and AMD, AMD claim that meltdown does not apply to them, uh, but it does apply to Intel. And the reason for that is that AMD have a slightly different technique for handling cache line accesses for illegal addresses. They don't cache, whereas Intel does. So there will be mitigation to that. Intel have already provided microcode level changes to the instruction set to try and mitigate some of these changes. So we're getting smarter about it. I don't think it's, it's, it's a big issue, but it's one that we will fix. Um, well, as I was just saying, and I suppose that's maybe uh, as we can draw to the end of our time here. You know, I think that that's perhaps a positive note. I think we we can take, isn't it? That because 
that this movement to this idea of persistent memory you know, is, is actually going to be so important to the technology mm-hmm. industry long term. And, you know, not just to technology, but to, to the way we use technology to solve, you know, solve real difficult problems. You know, this movement's going to be so important that actually as an industry, we're going to have to solve these things or else we're, we're never going to be able to, to move in the direction that, that we feel we need to. Yeah, and, and, and I'd just like to encourage people to think about, you know, the fact that meltdown inspect are one set of problems and persistent memory provides you with a whole new set of problems but they were smart enough to fix them at the end of the day. Yes, there have been the occasional bump in the road, if you like. We've, we've had that, whoops, we didn't see that one coming. Perhaps we should have. But now we have. I think we're much smarter about the way we're going to move forward with it. And in persistent memory terms, we're not so much worried about the spectrum meltdown pieces. What we are worried about with persistent memories, how do we do effective key management? How do we do effective partitioning of shared resources? And I think that's, that's something that we've, we're going to have answers for um, pretty soon, actually. I think, that, I think that there's been a lot of work put into this. There's a lot of big brains thinking about it, and I think we're going to have a really good set of answers. And the reason that, it's, that we will have that is that doing 3 million IOPS at 3 microseconds or doing 10 million at a microsecond or even less is just too tempting. People are going to do it, so we're going to have to fix the problems that come with it as well. Well, I mean, this has been, a, you know, and I could generally talk for another another hour at least uh, with with you on this and kind of the direction some of this stuff's heading. But um, but I'm also aware that uh, that our listener will have long since stopped listening. <laughs> so, um, but but if people do, you know, so if people have been, uh, and I'm sure they have been as as much as I have been, they've been fascinated by this conversation and you know either interested in what spectrum meltdown are, what the impacts are, or interested in some of the stuff that you're talking about with persistent memory and and where uh, where some of this stuff's going. I mean, is there some good resources that people can find where, you know, they, they might be able to kind of find out more about this kind of stuff, certainly, or stuff we can put in the show notes? There are. And in fact, two, two resources on Wikipedia, one on Meltdown and one on Spectre, they're actually quite good. And they will point out, for the technically minded, where you can get the original source papers for this. Uh, but with the Wikipedia articles on Spectre Meltdown are pretty good. And then there's also Sneer.org, um, the, the organization that I represent in my net app role, SNIA.org, S-N-I-A.org, slash SSSI, which is the Solid State Storage Initiative. And under that, we run a persistent memory group um, where we're putting persistent memory stuff together. There's a huge amount of training and technology available from the website, including things like uh, interesting stuff about NVMe uh, and and the over fabrics bit that I talked about. So there's, there's a lot of presentation and educational material there. And Alex, if people want to uh, find out a little bit more about you and stalk you on the internet, um, how can they go about doing that? Not a good idea. Honestly, do you, are you interested in Scottish politics? Because that's, that's basically what most of it is about. Okay. Yeah, I, I, you, you can find me on Twitter. Than, uh, that is more true than he's, he's admitting. <laughs> Yeah, so you, you can find me on Twitter as Alex Tangent. I wouldn't recommend following it, though, unless you're fairly hardcore about, about politics. Uh, it, I, I, we, we, you, we're going to get you a whole bunch of people who are real hardcore <laughs> about Scottish politics. <laughs> follow, follow you and find out more. Okay. Uh, that, that was a conversation we also had offline, which was, <laughs> which was a good start. <laughs> so, um, hey, Alex, well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that insight with us. And, um, you know, thanks, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the, the not-too-distant future. Thanks, Paul. That was great. 
I hope you enjoyed that. For show notes, pop over to techstringy.com. We'll also find all of our previous Tech Interviews episodes. We're going to be off for a few weeks now due to the Easter holidays here in the UK, but don't worry, we'll be back soon with a whole host of brand new shows looking at a range of tech topics. So to make sure you catch that, why not subscribe? You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, as well as all other good homes of podcasts. But for now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.